Good morning. We are in chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews in a sermon, Why God Became a Man. In some ways, it's a Christmas sermon, even as the song we just sang in many ways is a Christmas song. Uh, but it's something we celebrate all year round, uh, the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us in coming uh, to save us as one of us. So we're in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Hear then the word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you. We have come to give our hearts in worship. Father, we thank you for the privilege. Even now, as we draw near to you, we ask that you would draw near to us, that you would come, that you'd be among us, that you would open our hearts and our minds. And even now, as we sit at your feet and listen to your word, we ask that you would speak it to our minds and our hearts afresh, that it may come with power, that we may see Jesus, that we may know him and love him and put our faith with him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We would lean upon him as our great faithful high priest and lean into him for the strength and the grace to overcome. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Anselm, it's a name you may or may not have heard. He was a 12th century monk, uh, also a theologian. He's famous for writing a, uh, a little book that uh, stands in the stream of Christian theology and history, and you take those high points, and Anselm's name in this little book right in there in the, in the progress of Christian theology. It's a book called Cur Deus Homo. Uh, if you don't know Latin, which I don't, so uh, Cur Deus Homo is why God man. Why did God become a man was his little book. He wanted to ask that question. He, he says this, the question is put forth in his book, for what necessity and cause God, who is omnipotent, should have assumed the littleness and the weakness of human nature for the sake of its renewal? And the answer that he gives in the book essentially is, uh, it is his love, and it was necessary to redeem humanity. Because he loved us, it was necessary that God become a man. It was the only way that God could bring many sons to glory. It was the only way to redeem us. And he talks about our human nature, and he said it is only as far as is God, in the person of the Son, assumes or takes our nature, as far as he takes it, that far is it redeemed. And so that's why he comes all the way. He's made like his brothers in every way. And so in verse 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, because God's children are flesh and blood, so Jesus partook of flesh and blood, of our humanness. And so in verse 17, he says it again, 
I could find it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. They had flesh and blood. He took flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. Hear that inclusively. He had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, in every way, to share our humanity and our human experience. We're talking about uh, the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became a man. And with Anselm, we have to ask the question, why? Why did he do it? What was he doing? And the answer, as we've seen, is because the children shared in flesh and blood. And then you'd say, well, which children? You know, to be very clear about who he is talking about, and you have to say, look backwards, and he says, since therefore the children share, the therefore makes you look back. It's a conclusion to something he's been saying. And Therefore, since the children had flesh and blood, you go back just one verse to verse 13, and he says, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So the children that share flesh and blood are the children that God has given the Son to redeem. And God gave to the Son a, a, a a family, children, his children that he wants redeemed. And those children are flesh and blood, and so he has to become flesh and blood. These children, verse 13, is simply reinforcing what he said in verse 10, that it was fitting that he for whom, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. There are the sons and the daughters, the children that he's talking about. And so that is God's purpose from the beginning of creation was to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And in bringing them to glory, it was fitting, it was necessary for the Savior to come and to participate in our humanity. The children God has given me. These sons and daughters, the Father has given to the Son, and He's given them to the Son to save and to redeem and so to bring to glory. And so He took on flesh. He shared the same thing. So we see that in 14, He partook of the flesh and blood. We see it in 17, He was made like His brothers in every way. And what He's bringing, you know, coming across and in, in saying it both ways and repeating it in this way is to say that Jesus was really human. There are a lot of heresies that that dangle around the humanity of Christ, that he wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human, that that God did come, but he wasn't really a man. But the Scripture is just so very clear that the humanity of Christ is true and complete. And we need to be clear that the doctrine of the incarnation means, and it's very clear in what we just sang, and sometimes when you have it on your mind, you're just listening to, and paying attention to what we sing. What is very clear here is that it is God who became a man. In other words, Jesus wasn't just born as another person like you and I, and God decided to use him to accomplish some good things and purposes that he has. He, he wasn't just born but rather he eternally existed as God before he was born. And he took on flesh. He was, he was born. He created a body for himself. And he was born. But it was someone who, we didn't exist before we were born. At your birth, you came into existence. Well, prior to your birth, in, at conception, you came into existence. And God created you in my, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So we, we're, that's where we're knit together. That's where we come into our being. But Jesus wasn't this way. Jesus existed eternally before he was born and came 
and partook of our flesh and our blood, that he came and shared our humanity. Let me just nail it down. I'm going to run a bunch of scriptures by you. It says it so many ways, so many times, but we have to be so clear about this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, it says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and he didn't count equality with God, something that needed to be grasped or held on to, he was in the form of God, equal with God, but he emptied himself. And he existed in the form of God and was equal to God before he emptied himself. In fact, the emptying of himself was this incarnation by taking the form of a servant, being formed, uh, uh, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He was in the form of God, but now he's being found in human form. And we call that incarnation, in uh, taking on flesh, becoming human. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, and even death on a cross. He veiled his glory and took on a human form. We just read it in John chapter 1. You just look at verse 1 and verse 14. In verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, And the Word became flesh. He was with Him in the beginning. He existed. He's equal with God. He was God. And the Word became flesh. Paul says it in Colossians 1.19 this way. He says, In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God dwelling in a fully human man, united into one person. Jesus says it this way. And from his own lips in John 16, 28, he says this, I came from the Father, and I've come into the world. In other words, I was with the Father before I showed up. I was with the Father before I was born. I was outside of the world, and I came into the world. I took on flesh. He says, I came from the Father. I came into the world, and now I'm leaving the world. I'm going back to the Father. This is in the upper room discourse the night before he is arrested. But he wasn't just born. And this week, God came God came into the world in the person of Christ. And in this God-man, this person, he redeems us. The doctrine of the incarnation is foundational to all of our other doctrine. And sometimes people are very confused. We, we get these, these theology surveys that they do and, you know, just taking the pulse in America of those who, just general population and those who call themselves Christians and they take the pulse and they say, who understands, you know, what do they believe about this? What do they believe about this and this and this? And a lot of times the church is failing its theology exam. Getting its doctrine wrong, not understanding what it is that God has done and what it is that we are saying when we say these things. And not only is it foundational to our Christian doctrine, it is actually central to our saving faith. Who Jesus is, is the center of our faith and what it means to believe in him and be saved. The confession that saves us, in a nutshell, as the scripture sometimes puts it out there, is Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say he's Lord, we mean he is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. It is our saving faith. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. There is nothing worse that could befall a human being than to die in their sins and to face the judgment of God in that condition. And so he warns, he tells, he, he is speaking to 
Jewish nation and Jewish leadership, I'm telling you, I told you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. I'm I'm the one that I am telling you that I am. I told you I came from the Father and I came into the world and I and the Father are one. And Before Abraham I was in all the ways that Jesus has, has communicated to them and he tells them unless you believe that I am he, that I am that one, you will die in your sins. It is essential to our saving faith to understand who Jesus is and what God has done. That he is the one who has saved us. He didn't just send someone to save us. God came, so different than any other religion on the face of the earth, where you are working your way up to God, where you are doing things to to get God to accept and please you, where in Christianity, God came, and he did for you what we could not do for ourselves to save us. John Flavel puts it this way, Jesus Christ assumed the true nature of man into a personal union with the divine nature. And he still remains true God and true man in one person forever. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And he's still in our nature, in his resurrected body. The tomb was empty, and and he was resurrected physically, and his human nature was glorified and transformed and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, he still is God with us in our human nature. And all this begs the question, where we started, with why? Why would God do this? And some, it it is so unthinkable to so many in fact, the Jews of his day, when we talk about, you know, that we preach Christ and him crucified, but this is a stumbling block to the Jews. This idea that God would come or that Messiah, even as a human Messiah would be crucified, was a stumbling block to them. Messiah was not, Messiah was a victorious conqueror in many ways in their minds, but this was not what they, the way they would think of him. And so they reject, he's a stumbling block. The idea, and particularly if God became a man, was crucified. It's a stumbling block. It's where, the, it's where Islam, it's rub and when it's different ways. And as, as even as, as Muhammad had bumped into Christian doctrine, and one of the ways, if you read the Quran, Jesus is in there, Mary is in there, his birth, immaculate birth. A lot of this stuff is in there, but where they depart is he is not God. And he was not crucified. And that's where they'll part ways. And every religion in the world will part ways. True God and true man. Why? Why would he do it? That he did do it. And the answer is, as we started already, is in order to bring many sons to glory. And to save God's children. I and the children you've given to me. And he explains why here in this text in two places. So we've, we've been pulling together this doctrine of incarnation. 14, he partook of our flesh. And 17, he was made like us in every way. And each of those is followed by a so that. Right? And that's going to be the next two points in here. So that, if you look at the outline if you, in your bulletin, so that he could destroy sin, death, and the devil. And then down in 17 and 18, it's so that he may become a merciful and high, faithful high priest. This is why he had to do it. Jesus comes and he conquers what Martin Luther called the unholy trinity. Sin, death, and the devil. Right? He comes 
to conquer these three, sin, death, and the devil. And that's what he says in verse 14. As you see, he comes down. He, he, the children share in flesh and blood. So he likewise partook of the same things. That. Are you going to put so that? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. There we have the death and the devil. And he's made like his brothers and sisters in every way in verse 17. So that he may become. We see the third member then of this unholy trinity right following there in verse 17 that he becomes so that he become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people so that he could destroy the devil and death and he can make propitiation for the sins of his people. These are the enemies of God's children, sin, death, and the devil that must be conquered if he is going to bring those children, those sons and daughters to glory. Sin, death. In the devil. And so let's look at how these three are related. All of you know the story from Genesis chapter 1 to 3, where the devil obtains power over humanity through sin. Temptation and sin, which is at the heart of this passage. He's going to end with how he's able to help us when we're tempted, because he was tempted. But Adam was tempted. And he sinned, he fell. And it was through that temptation and that sin that Adam falls and death is the consequence. So the devil uses sin to kill us, to destroy us, not just physically but spiritually and eternally. And to bring many sons and daughters to glory, he's going to have to conquer them. And so if... He obtains power through sin. The result is death. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It's the devil's tool. He is the father of sin. He's the first sinner. right? He's the first rebel against God. He's the first one to defy the will of God. He's the first one. And anyone who sins is of the devil, is is following his path, his way. right? So whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared so that he might destroy the works of the devil, which is sin and death. The result of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And the devil brings death through sin. For Romans 5.12 says this, speaking of Genesis 1-3 and the fall of Adam. Sin came into the world through one man. And we know that one man was tempted through his wife and through the devil. And so he tempts them to sin. And then we see sin came into the world through this one man and death came through sin. So that death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the devil brings death through sin. So Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. The wages of death is sin and all have sinned. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so the devil, a great enemy of God, and they're an enemy of God's people, has conquered in some ways the world through sin by bringing death to all people, both physical and spiritual. When people sin, they rebel against God, they break His law and earn its wages, and that wage is the judgment of death. And the sting that brings death is the venom of sin. If you think of a scorpion's tail, the sting that brings death 
is sin. The venom is sin. It's what kills us, brings us under judgment, under the curse, the curse of the law, which is if you don't keep the law, you come under the curse of the law, which is the judgment of God. And the judgment against sin, the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual, eternal. And if the venom of sin then is the sting that brings death, then to defang the devil, they have to deal with sin. You must deal with sin to conquer and defang the devil and his death. And so verse 17 is a faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus made propitiation for, the, for God's children. For his people. He made propitiation. Propitiation is a fancy word. If I were to take a survey right now, how many people know what propitiation is? Um, you'd probably be half of us, and, and half of us would get half of what it means. But propitiation is a, it's a big word. They, some places, like the NIV, they gloss it over with the word atonement, that he made atonement for our sin. But one reason that the ESV goes back and follows the KJV and putting propitiation back in is that atonement only covers half of the idea that what it means to make propitiation for the sins is to make an atonement. Atonement literally means to cover sin. You cover sin by paying its debt, right? You owe, you, owe, you owe one life for your sin, and Jesus offers that life, pays your debt, and that sin is covered. But on the other side of the idea of propitiation, it involves that, that, that we're not just involved with our sin, but God is involved, and so is his judgment and his wrath against sin. That's why sin is so deadly. And so propitiation does both. It covers our sin and it satisfies the justice of God. It satisfies his wrath. It appeases all of that. I love, I think it's a hymn by Newton where it, it, it speaks about when we're in Christ and his justification and what he has done. It not only covers our sin, but it says justice smiles and asks no more. Justice is satisfied. That is God's justice and God's wrath. And so he goes from being the judge to being our father. And it changes it in a radical way that you, you cannot overestimate the radical change in relationship. When God is no longer your judge, in the sense that judgment is done, it's behind us in Christ. And what is in front of us is a father who is bringing his many sons and daughters to glory, who is bringing them home. Propitiation, covering our sin and satisfying the justice and the wrath of God. Romans 3, 24 and 5 says this, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, this atoning, wrath-satisfying offering by his blood. What was owed was a life, our life. The wages of sin is death. He pays it by his blood to be received by faith. The Lord Jesus came from the Father and he took on flesh and blood so that he could bleed and die to make propitiation, to cover our sin, pay our debt, satisfy the justice In verse 15, he says, And thereby he will deliver us, all those who through the fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. The lifelong slavery of the fear of death, which is a cruel tyrant. It's that looming reality. 
It's the way of all flesh. Death is coming for us all. In some ways, we're all, we're all dying. And even as I say, when you start talking about death, people don't want to talk about it. You ever try to have that conversation with your parents or your parents with you? And oftentimes, they're like, don't, I don't want to talk about it. And sometimes things are not in order when death does come because we never wanted to talk about it. And so we don't get into, you know, our house in order the way we should because we're facing the prospect and the reality. We don't, even want, we don't want to think about it. We entertain ourselves till death because we don't want to think about it, meditate on it, contemplate on it. It is my destiny. I will die sooner or later. The Lord knows these things. But for so many, it is this looming, cruel tyrant that they will not look in the face. But the Christian is set free. We can join Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. He says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death was sin, and the power of sin was the law. But thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ gives us the victory. The sting of death was sin, and Jesus made a propitiation for our sin. And thanks be to God, he gave us the victory that death is no longer, and it is a defeated foe. We still must pass through it, but for us it has become a door to go home, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus says that if you believe in me, even though you die, yet shall you live, Right, and so the sting is removed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We have no fear. In fact, I'm looking forward to going home. I was made for him and through him and to him. And to see him and to be with him is nothing but the the satisfaction of the very purpose of our creation. And we have nothing to fear for ourselves or those whom we love, whose faith and trust is in Christ. He delivers those who through the fear of death have been in a slavery. We have been set free, he says. So he was made like his brothers and sisters. 1 John 4, 18, it says this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You've not understood. There is no punishment for you. Fear has to do with punishment. And perfect love, if you understand the love of God, I I quoted it, I think, last week in 1 John chapter 3, Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God. But if you understand that love, that you have been called the sons and daughters of God, that Jesus has, in fact, come, took on flesh, shed his blood to cover your sin and to appease and to satisfy his wrath, to make you his children that now he is bringing home. There is no fear. That love, that, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus that has made us to stand, even in this moment, if you are in Christ as his sons and daughters. Romans 8.15 says this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. Brothers and sisters, no. That is not your spirit. No slavery, no fear. Why? 
you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. And what your hearts cry is not fear, oh, woe is me. What our hearts, the spirit of adoption in God's children cries, Abba, Father. And I look forward to the day. Verse 16, he says he took on flesh and blood, not to help angels. It's thrown in there. He is, he is demonstrating the, su- the superiority of Jesus to everybody and everything. Next week, we're going to bump into Moses. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. It wasn't angels that he came to save. Angels are glorious creatures, there's no doubt. But he didn't come to save them. They're not flesh and blood. They're a spiritual creature. And taking flesh and blood does them no good. He assumed our nature to save us. God's plan for the angels is different. Some of them have fallen as well. But let me say gently here, I just sometimes take the opportunity to say these things, but I say it gently because maybe you've written something like this, but our hope in death is not to become angels. That's not our destiny. Angels are a different order of being. Angels are angels. As far as I know, they'll always be angels. And humans are humans. As far as I know, we'll always be human, though one day we will be glorified. Our bodies, sown in weakness, will be raised in power, sown physical, raised spiritual. But we'll have a body. We will be body souls. We will be like Jesus, his resurrected body, together in his humanity. So we we are one thing. Angels are another thing. We don't become angels. So when, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, God needed another angel. I'm pretty sure he didn't. So I'm just making light, but that's not our destiny. He became like us so we could become like him. He became poor so that in him we could become rich. He took on our nature in 1 John right after he says those things about the love and it being his children. He says that, that, that one day when we see him face to face, we will be like him. A glorified man. He's a God, man will never be God either. (laughs) We'll not be angels, we'll not be God. But what we will be is like Jesus' humanity, perfected and glorified. What we were meant to be and beyond what we were meant to be because now in eternity we're united to Christ. Second, so that. That's the first, so that. So that. He could conquer sin, death, and the devil. But in verse 17, he says, he became like his brothers in every respect, every way possible, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God first, making that propitiation for the sins, and also because he himself suffered when he was tempted in his human nature, truly human, truly suffering through temptation, because of that he is able to help those, you and me, when we're tempted. Passage tells us two ways. The first so that and the second. Two ways. Uh, Well, the two ways that he serves as a faithful high priest. Right, in the text, the words aren't used, but the ideas are here. They're the Christian ideas that you know. That, that he is a, as a merciful and faithful high priest, he does two things. He justifies us and he sanctifies us. Justifying us is that propitiation where our sins are forgiven and we're made right with God. Justified. Happens in a moment when you trust in Jesus. Done deal. 
Judgment is behind you. You're his child in Christ. He justified, but he also sanctifies. That we have a standing of rightness with God as his children. Now he's going to make us more and more like his children. Sanctification is making more and more like Jesus. It's a process. It starts the day you trust him. And it ends the day you see him face to face. And you're perfectly like him. And in between, he is making us more and more like himself. And he is the perfect son of God. And you move toward being better, hopefully. More and more holy. More and more like him. Less and less like our old selves. Less and less like the devil in his sin who's been sinning from the beginning. In justification, Jesus delivers us from the curse of sin and death by making propitiation for our sins. In sanctification, he sets us free from the presence and power of sin by helping us in our temptation. Right? In justification, he, d- he delivers us from the curse of sin. And in sanctification, he's delivering us from the presence and the power of sin. Setting us free to be more the people we're meant to be, more like him. And Jesus is able to help those who are tempted. Now, let me ask you, is there anybody here that falls into that category? Because I want to talk to you. Anybody who falls in the category of the tempted? There's a few, me, I think my wife, a couple of others here this morning. All right, my point is, being silly again, that it's you cannot get more relevant or personal than our daily struggle against sin to, to, to not stop being the old man, to put off the old man and to put on the new, to stop, to stop you know, serving the slavery of sin and death. We have become slaves to righteousness and to Christ. It is that daily struggle, the struggle to be faithful to the God who saves us when we put our faith in Jesus. But when we did that, we went to war. We entered into a struggle against the presence and power of sin. Because any Christian will tell you, though Jesus has conquered it, and it is a defeated foe, that there, we've already talked about the already and not yet. It's already defeated. We're already standing in Christ. We're already justified, but we're not there yet. We don't see him face to face yet. And in between, we enter this struggle against the presence and power of sin that remains. And so the first thing I want us to see as we think about this and end with these, this struggle is this. The first thing we notice is that propitiation and justification come first. Again, absolutely crucial in Christian doctrine. So many live as if, it, as if the reserve, that it comes after sanctification. Right? Propitiation, justification comes first. Our sin is covered. God's wrath is appeased. It's It's done. He did it, and we believed it, and it is accredited to us as righteousness, and we stand right in him. Propitiation is behind us. Justification is behind us. And we see it in the text. It's so important because we're free to pursue our sanctification without fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Even as we struggle in our sin, even as we struggle day by day, even as we fail and take three steps forward and two steps back and three more forward and two back and we, and we wrestle and we strive on that marathon, that lifelong pursuit of holiness and, and knowing him and loving him and being more like him. But he understands that it's a struggle. He tells us right here that he understands. But we have to understand that first comes the propitiation, that you're his children first. 
And that's why we struggle. We don't struggle. There are a lot of folks who fight against sin and temptation, hoping they'll do well enough that God will forgive them and accept them. And let me just tell you right now, that'll never work. And you will never be loved and accepted by God by your success in fighting your sin. If you start there, you will, Jesus says, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he. Unless we believe and trust him. What he's saying is you believe and trust me and you will not die in your sins. Even though you may struggle with it till you die. Is it making sense? We trust and believe in him first. If your faith in Jesus is, is that Jesus is your high priest before the Father, then you stand cleansed, forgiven, accepted, and free right now, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. You... You, if you're in Christ and he is your righteousness, you will never be less cleansed, forgiven, accepted, and free than you are at the moment that you trust him. And that is where we start. That's why we can rise each new morning into his mercies. His mercies new every morning. Why? Because we're his children. And as we repent and believe in Jesus, we rise every morning into new mercies. He gives us fresh grace to fight another day. Every day, you can rise into new mercy, fresh grace, fresh strength, fresh worship to fight another day, to pursue him. So we need to understand that happens first. The second thing we need to understand is that Jesus understands. It's one of the startling things in the passage. And I have to say, for me, it's one of the things that I still wrestle with. And only by faith do I believe that he understands. Because for you and I, you and I know that it is in the place of our temptation and sin that we feel most ashamed. Least likely to look up. (laughs) And he is saying it is in that moment, in that place, in that place in, in your life, he says, that's where I can help you. I know about that place. And it's there that I can help you. I, that he understands that we struggle. And there's no struggle that you have that a, a thousand others don't have. No temptation has seized you, 1 Corinthians, except what is common to man. And Jesus was a man. And it was common to him at some level. But he, he overcomes it. So there's this understanding that Jesus understands my struggle. For me, that is staggering because I want to believe it and I want him to be a faithful and merciful high priest who's on my side all the time, even when it's hard and even when I'm stumbling and struggling. I want him to be on my side. And the scripture says he is. He suffered. Isn't that an interesting word in verse 18 when he says that because he himself suffered when he was tempted? I think it was gentle and lowly. Um, I think it was Thad who was reminding me of this in there, there, that he uses the illustration. He said, sometimes we think because Jesus didn't sin, he must not understand our temptation. He must not understand our struggle. But he uses the illustration in there to say, no, he understands it better than you do because he's tempted in all ways like we are. And it's like, it's like we're both, we're all walking into a hurricane wind. Right, the wind of temptation and sin, it can feel so strong and overwhelming. And as we walk into this hurricane wind, you and I often fail and give in to it. And then we stop fighting and we lose to it. Jesus doesn't. Right? He never gives in to that. So and there's a sense in which he faces that fierce 
thing all the way to the end and never gives in. He understands the power of temptation better than any of us because he never gave in to it. He suffered it all the way through, all the time, always, yes, maybe winning in the sense that he doesn't, but in his humanity, fully experiencing the power of it. He understands. I pray for the grace to believe it every day. That he's still on my side. He is a merciful, see what he says, so that he, so that he became like us, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help us. Merciful, faithful helper on our side. All the strength of his grace for the children of God that he's bringing to glory through temptations as we say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, right? And as, and as he's bringing many sons to glory through that field, all the strength of his grace is bent to help us and to deliver us day by day till the day we stand in his presence and are delivered even from this struggle as we will see him. We must believe that he's merciful, that he understands, that he forgives, that he cares about us, that he's on our side, that in fact, he is our brother, right? That's what it says, he is our brother. We must believe that he's faithful, that he loves us with an everlasting love, that he became like us in every way with this, the end purpose, the, one of the central purposes to be able to help us. So he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. He, he has come as Emmanuel, God, with us from this day to the last. He has undertaken from all eternity. He was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And he has undertaken from all eternity, from, from eternity past, to bring his sons and his daughters home to glory. And my friends, I'll tell you now, he will not fail. And he will be ever faithful. So finally, we must believe that he's able to help us. The word, when it says there in the very last phrase, that he's able to help us, the word there, able, is the word dunamai. Right? It's a strong word. It's a word about power. It's about ability. It's a word we get dynamite from. It's not, you know, but it, it's not that, but it is, gives you that sense of power, the idea of dunamis, that he has the power to help us. He has it to help us in our fight. And so let me ask you this morning, I'll wrap up with these two thoughts. Do you believe that you can do nothing apart from Jesus? When it comes to spiritual things, spiritual victory, spiritual life, spiritual graces, fruits of the Spirit, and the list goes, do you believe that you can do nothing apart from Him? I think it's one of the great struggles of the Christian life to actually get to the place where you believe that. Because it's not until you believe that that you'll believe that it's only in Christ that I can do all things. And that in Christ is the power that I need, not in me which is why I need every morning to awaken to his grace because I need fresh grace and power to fight today or I am a lost cause. Overcoming temptation is not in our ability and not in our strength. It is in the strength of the spirit of Jesus who lives in us. Colossians 1.27 says it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Temptation should drive us closer and closer to Jesus when in our experiences often because we don't believe that he's faithful and merciful and he understands. It tends to drive us further and further away. In our shame, 
when our shame should drive us there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from unrighteousness. He will grace us and strengthen us, and he's on our side. Morning by morning, day by day, lean into Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Morning by morning, seeking that grace and that power. Because thanks be to God, he has given us the victory in Jesus. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that from all eternity you did love us and that you sent your own Son into the world to take on our nature so that he could bleed and die and cover our sin and satisfy justice that we may be delivered. Oh, may we believe it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we trust you in it. May we stand in it every morning. May we find your grace fresh, your power Come, Lord Jesus, and help us to see you as our faithful and merciful high priest. For we ask it in his name. Amen.